Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, Mr. Long, there in the foothills of the, of Ozark. the Ozarks. The Ozarks. How are you? Shalom, Rabbi. Shalom to our listeners. And, you know, the fall colors are emerging now, and, you know, it, it's this really interesting time of the year where the dying of the leaves is where we get the color and everything. And it it really makes me think of of this week's Parsha that we're going to talk about, Chayi Sarah. I had and, a, a, a feeling that that's where you were going. <laughs> yeah, because it's, uh, well, in fact, I woke up at three o'clock this morning. So I immediately got up and I read through the entire Parsha. Every time you read the entire Parsha, you often pick up something that you somehow missed. and as I was thinking about this, the phrase popped into my head was l'chaim. And I think you know where I'm going with this, but I want you to pick up the thread because the idea of the way it describes her life. Right. And and also, um, first of all, just for, for our listeners' sake, um, we're talking about the portion called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, which begins in chapter 23, verse 1 of of Sefer uh, Breshit of Genesis. That I think that actually your... Um, analogy of the trees changing color um, is kind of perfect because actually, believe it or not, I think the theme of this whole Parsha, which by the way, the Parsha ostensibly is so specific, very, very specific, because it's only about two things. It's literally two two uh, subjects in the entire Torah portion, and that is the, the death of Sarah and her and her burial. And most of the portion is taken up with uh, Eliezer, the servant of Avraham Avinu, um, his mission to find a wife for Isaac. But I, but I think that the bottom line of everything, there is one theme actually that emerges on many, many levels. Uh, and this is, this is what you're reminding me of. Uh, and that is, I would say, life after death. Right. Life after death is really is really about is everything about this portion because it's not only like it sounds like you think I mean like which I do, but it also is about life after death in many other ways. It's about it's about um, kind of like um, continuing the the life of Sarah even after she died through her offspring, through her, through her new daughter-in-law, her tent coming back to life, her spirit staying in the world. I mean, I mean, it's about the generations. This Parsha, this whole portion has one theme, and that is throughout the generations, from generation to generation. As you're saying, it represents transition, transition, which right. is so much a part of, of life, and it's so much a part of the Torah. And I'm dealing with this myself, of course, in my personal life for some weeks now, having having just um, been facing two deaths in the immediate family, thinking about this a lot. And, and the fact is that it is a major principle in Torah that we believe in life after death. We absolutely do. Not everybody does, Jim. Not everybody mm-hmm. believes in the eternity of the soul. They don't believe in the um, the whole concept of what this world represents and and um, what death is all about. And so we actually learn about some of these things for the first time now in this week's Torah portion. And again, we have this principle 
which is very powerful and very intense throughout Torah, that any time you, you are confronted with something for the first time in Torah, when something a subject is introduced for the first time, that's like the source of all of its secrets in, in the whole Torah, right? So the thing about this, this Torah portion is that this is the first mention, really, of the burial of a person. It's the first mention of a eulogy, it's the first mention of, of, of a spouse crying over the death of a spouse. Right. And, yet, and yet the amazing thing is we are now many, many generations into humanity. We are uh, 20 generations since Adam. And so certainly countless people have passed on yeah. until now. And yet we haven't been told about even one of them where they're buried. Mm-hmm. or that they were eulogized or, or anything like that. And we know that they were great people in, in every generation practically. So the question here really is what is the, is the whole significance of this dynamic that we have here? And of course we know before the get-go that Avraham and Sarah were a very close couple. They were very, their relationship was amazing and they were absolutely on the same page about their life's mission. I brought up the idea of l'chaim. The word chaim is a plural. When you're giving a toast to someone and saying congratulations, you're you're saying to your lives. That's how the Parsha actually opens with this reference. To, it says Sarah's life was 100 years, 20 years, and seven years, the years of Sarah's life. It not only is Avraham eulogizing her, but the Torah is eulogizing her. Explain for us, Rabbi, the the beauty behind the phrasing of that. Well, first of all, on your uh, whole concept of l'chaim, um, it is. I would I would say that toast, as you say that that blessing, is more than anything a celebration of life, and that's really what it is. That because we celebrate life, Torah teaches us to celebrate life and not to. A sanct- not to sanctify or enshrine death. In other words, death, first of all, it's not the end. Second of all, it is a passage. It is a, it is a, um, a transposition into another state of being. But it's life that's sacred. You know, there, what, what we, regarding death and regarding uh, a, a burial site and everything that we're going to be discussing now today in this week's Parsha that we learned from Avraham's behavior and from his purchase of the tomb of the Bedrachs in Hebron, that, that is all, yes, we, 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 because we revere a person, because we revere their memory, because of what they did in the world, because of who they were, because of the life that they lead, because of they, what they leave behind, because of what we can learn from them, it's they they are sacred their soul is sacred their memory is sacred but death is the end of the physical and then the physical um plane of, of reality and moving on to the next stage which we which we believe in life after life as it were yeah. but but we don't but we don't you know, idealize death, the, the reverence and the respect which we show to those that have par- parted from us and, and, the, and the reverence that we show in a cemetery and the, and, the, and the honor and the respect that we have for a place of burial is because of who the person was and because of the blessing that they bring to us, but not intrinsically in death itself. And that's the only reason I'm bringing that up because believe it or not, there are people who are confused about that because they have been taught and because there are religions as it were and disciplines today that still teach that death is something uh, to look forward to and that death is holy somehow. And and that is a perversion of, 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 
of what Torah considers to be holy. In other words, this world is the world we celebrate. We celebrate life all the while that we are here. When it's time to go, it's time to go. There's no question about that. And 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 you know, we're not we're not afraid of leaving the world. And when that when Hashem's timing has it that it's time for us to leave, then it's time for us to move on to that. But every moment that we have in this world is sacred. Because there's no, we can't make a difference to this world once we're gone. We can't, we can't do anything more for Hashem's honor in this world once once we're gone. That's the place of reward. That's the place of a, a different level of reality. But this is the one that counts now, and that's the thing, Jim. That's what we're getting. That's what we're getting to now. Because the the portion, which is so unbelievable, is that it's it's named after Sarah who was one of the most amazing people who ever lived. It's named after our matriarch, Sarah. It's called the life of Sarah. And yet these first few verses are all about her death. And this portion called the life of Sarah features the very first uh, recounting of the burial of a person and their, and their eulogy and the, and the tears associated with, with, their, with their passing. So you asked this question about the breakdown of the verses because the verses here are presented in a very unique way. And of course, we know that Torah, in addition to being very economical with words, is also very, very specific and very, very carefully laden with meaning with everything that is phrased. And so rather than in, in Hebrew, rather than tell us that she was 127 years old, when she passed away, the verse splits it up and says that the days of her, of her life, that her lifetime was a hundred years and 20 years and seven years. And the famous teaching from our sages that Rashi uh, brings here is that they were all um, equal in goodness. Mm -hmm. They're all equal in goodness. I'm not going to go into that right now because I'm actually going to be speaking about that in the video this week, about what, what that all means. This concept of the hundred years, the 20 years, the seven years, the, the breakdown. But I, but I do want to say this, Jim, if I may, because I, again, it's called the life of Sarah. It's the, it's the, it's these concepts we're meeting for the first time that Avraham comes to, um, purchase a place for uh, for her and of course this is the we're reading here about Maratha Machpelah, the right. cave of the patriarchs the tomb of patriarchs in Hebron. in fact this shabbat here in in israel parashat chayesara traditionally this is um the sabbath of Hebron. it's a sabbath in which literally tens of thousands of people from all over the country and from all over the world would come and spend shabbat with the jewish community there in Hebron to be close to our parents Abraham, mm -hmm. Isaac, and Jacob, and 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 Sarah and Leah. And the other name, the other name for the, for the community or for the area is Kiryat Arba, the which is a reference to the four, those who were buried at Machpelah. Right. To Adam and Eve, as we discussed in Parshat Vayera, are buried there. That's how Abraham found the entrance to the tomb when he was chasing after the calf to do an act of kindness to the strangers. He mm -hmm. stumbled into the resting place of Adam and Eve. So it's Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and Jacob and Leah. We have here in the beginning of our Parsha basically 20 verses on Sarah's death from mm -hmm. the beginning of the Parsha, 20 verses and uh, from it's it's basically all of chapter 23 is all about um sarah's death the opening subject however if you open up your heart in the deepest way take another look now and see that really 
only four are about her. The first four verses are about her, namely as follows. Sarah's lifetime was 100 years, 20 years, and seven years, the years of Sarah's life. Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham rose up from the presence of his dead and spoke to the children of Chet, saying, I am an alien and a resident among you. Grant me an estate for a burial site with you that I may bury my dead from before me. And then that begins the rest of the verses, 16 altogether, which are all about the business between Avraham and Ephron. Yeah. And so yeah. I ask you, because you know that every verse in Torah is so deep and so significant, and we have so many lessons here. Why does Torah uh, deem it fitting to record every single aspect of, of, the, of the transaction? And not, not the transaction, but even of the, the negotiations. Back and forth, there's so much here going on between, uh, between Ephron, who, by the way, according to our, uh, the mystical teachings of our sages, he was like so out of it. He was totally zoned out and he didn't see anything special about this cave. He had no idea of what it was. He had no idea Adam and, and Eve were there. He had no idea. He did not sense or feel the spiritual intensity emanating from this place. It was like nothing to him. He didn't see anything. If he had, knowing how he transacted this deal, he would have, if he'd known that, he would have put up a sign and charged admission. You, you get the feeling that he's some sort of a used car salesman here. There's something, there's something going on here that is like. The word sleazy comes to mind. Okay. Right. And Efron, he says, and when you look at it, he says, wow, what's, what's 400 uh, shekels of and silver? And he jumped. You know, first he's saying, first he's saying, take it, take it, take it. It's yours. Yeah. It's yours. Take it. Bury your right. dead. And then all of a sudden we hear this figure that right. we didn't hear before. So he jumped basically from saying, take it for nothing. What's what's this between friends to, oh, it's only 400 silver shekels. Yeah, Rabbi, that is a tremendous about, amount of money. Yeah, think about that. It's between 50,000. It's it's roughly around that, depending on what silver goes for today. Right. So so he, so there's a few things going on here on different levels. First of all, the first thing he says is right. I'm looking at these verses here in the beginning of chapter 23. He says, um, "The children of Chet answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God in our midst.' And again, this is as we've learned already. Abraham had a reputation. He definitely was well respected by the people who recognized his, his faith and his, and his greatness and who had lived amongst them and, and shown them the meaning of true kindness. I mean, he definitely was a personality. So, he, so, so they say to him, in the midst of, in the, it, the choicest of our burial places, bury your dead. Any of us not, will not withhold this burial place from you from burying your dead. In other words, he's, they're saying, you know, what, what's the problem? Like here, here, here's a cemetery, choose a place, and uh, go in and, and bury your dead. And you have to understand this is a very, very deep idea. Um, it's like here, like the Malbim is talking about this, you know, one of the classic commentaries is like, the way that they looked at it, it's like, it's like, um, you know, disposable, like it's like garbage, you know, throw, throw, throw something out here, that's okay, you know, it doesn't matter, wherever you want, with no significance. And Avraham used this opportunity to teach them something very, very deep. What he, what he was really teeping, teaching them on, the, on one level, he was not wasting this opportunity to give over something of lasting meaning to the, to the people. And that was the eternity of the soul. 
this is he was emphasizing to them again this is why th these verses one of the reasons why these verses are, are taking up so much space is that he was saying to them uh, you know you're going to sleep for half an hour a good night's sleep is six hours whatever well she's going to be going to sleep now and then she's going to be getting up and so that's why this is extremely significant. It's and he, they, in other words, the the people that he's speaking to, the Bnei Chait, had no conception whatsoever of the concept of life after death. Which is why I, I began speaking about that a few minutes ago. The, the whole idea of what it means that this transition and of the fact that there will be a resurrection. They had they were not subscribing to that idea. That I had no idea. So this is one of the things that he wanted to emphasize to them why it was so important that. Um, proper respect is allocated to this whole process. So that's that's one thing. On one level, he's he's saying to them, you know, this is temporary now, and that's why this has to be orderly because she's going to be coming back to this from this space, right? But then there's something even deeper. He what does he call it? He calls it a chuzat kever kever in in verse four, and it's translated here as. Um, an estate, the word achuza. He's calling it an, an estate. Give me a, an achuza. Now, what does this word mean in Torah? This is very, very deep. I, so turn for a moment to Leviticus. I want to compare this. Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus chapter 25, we're talking about um, the sabbatical year and the Jubilee. And so we have here in verse 13, um, in the Jubilee year, in this Jubilee year, says chapter 25 and verse 13 in the book of Leviticus, in this Jubilee year, you shall return each man to his achuzah, to his achuzah, and it's translated here as to his ancestral heritage, the same word. In other words, the same word, which in our verse is translated here in the art scroll as an estate. There in Leviticus 25, 13, it's translated as his ancestral heritage. What is my point? That the word achuza means something that's really mine, no matter what, even if somebody else is holding it. Just like in, Le in Leviticus, it will return to him. It's mine. Because this is why Ephron kept saying, take it, take it. He looks like such a nice guy. Three times mm -hmm. he says, take it. I gave it to you. Take it, take it, right? As if it's like a matana, like a present, or, or even if it's a, it's a deal, but it's a deal that we're on day, I'll, one day I'll get it back. And this is the, this is the kind of like the, um, the back and forth of the dispute that's going on between the lines on, on the one level is that Abraham is saying, no, this is mine. That's what an achuzah means. It means I am going to be returning to it. It is, it is, it is what is what is being given to me now belongs to me. It is returning to me, and it will return to me. And then there's this whole other level of of, of understanding, which is which is amazing. Which is that because all of a sudden he jumps to four hundred, right? What what is that? Like from where did you get that? So on a on a very deep mystical um, level, there's an idea that our sages expressed that the whole of the land of Israel is four hundred by four hundred right. which is parasangs, right? Yeah, whatever that means, it's some sort of unit of measure. But so, but the idea is that this is like basically Hashem was speaking through Ephron to Avraham and saying that by your purchasing this achuza of the Maratha Machpila, 
this is the whole of the land of Israel. Right. And that's why Abraham doesn't argue. That's yeah. why if you notice, when he, as soon as he says 400, Abraham doesn't say a word. He doesn't, he doesn't argue because basically this is what he understood Hashem is saying to him. I promised it to you. I promised you this land here. Pay this money up now. No one, no one has any sort of, of um, claim against you. It's it's all yours, and that's why Ephron says even the trees. Right? Who who asked for the trees? Adam didn't ask for the trees that are in. He asked for the cave. Mm-hmm. But no, it's all it's all yours. The whole of the land of Israel is is yours. And and of course, this goes back to the idea that we've spoken about many times, which is that even though Hashem promised the entire land of Israel to Abraham's children. Through Isaac, of course, shall your seed be called. Let's make sure that's perfectly clear. So even though he promised him in the whole land, there's three places that the Torah points out that we that money was paid, that, it, that there's, a, there's a deed of sale. The Torah is testifying to a deed of sale, that there was a purchase, that no one could come along in the future and question your right to this land. Of course, this is the first one, the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, the tomb of Joseph in Shechem, mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the place of the temple. Yeah. which David purchased from Arav Nadir Jebusite. And those three places seem to symbolize, all, you know, the whole, um, um, what, what should I call it? Not contention, but, but um, the, the rewriting of history by all these elements that are trying to wrench the land of Israel away from the Jewish people. Right. And gematria even ties these concepts together, Rabbi. The, the gematria of the name Ephron is 400. Oh my goodness. And of course, he paid 400 shekels. The gematria of the word double is 400. And the gematria of the word years in Hebrew is 400. I, get, I just pause here. I have to kiss you on the forehead. So that's my custom. Whenever somebody says a good, beautiful Torah thought, that is Thank absolutely you. staggering. I was not even aware of that. It ties everything together that you just, uh, you gave us this deed. Uh, represented a, a kind of a grandfather clause. As we say, it was grandfathered in. He was returning to the promise that was given to him uh, at Covenant of the Pieces. The 400 years is alluded to. And even in the word double, it's the idea that there's double meanings going on here in this right. whole Amazing. conversation. So so Hebron itself, the word, of course, the root of the word is Haver. Yeah. Which is which is friend. Friends. And of course, that with that word is connected, is c- connected, get it, is connected to chibor, which means a connection. Right. And the, uh, so, because you are uh, connected to a friend and Hebron is named so because Avraham was Hashem's friend. Amen. And, uh, and uh, David HaMelech, King David, before he reigned in Jerusalem, he reigned in Hebron. Hebron is like the secret of, of the connection between the people of Israel and the land of Israel. It all starts there, really. And uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very fitting name. And so, so that's why this, this Parsha is so significant. Also, besides the fact, Jim, and I, I know you've been to the Tomb of the Patriarchs, and, yeah. and I've really tried so hard to bring people there. It's not, not always easy to get there. Um, it's so important that people visit the tomb of the patriarchs because the spiritual sense there is literally overwhelming. It, the the incredible power of prayer in that place is so intense. It is literally life changing to go to that place and to be standing there in the in the rooms where you have the markers 
of the location of the of the tombs of of Abraham and Isaac and Yaakov and and Sarah and and Rivka and Leah, it's absolutely indescribable in words. I know. I can attest to to the, having that feeling. My very first visit there at Hebron, because I couldn't get over the idea that that below my feet was the beginning of of the remains of the beginning of of humanity. Look at the the really faithful servant of Hashem, Kalev. Where was the first place he went to when right. when the the, the Miraglin, the spies were sent to Canaan to quote spy out the land end quote? The first right. place he goes to is he goes to Hebron. To pray to Hashem to, to be to delivered from the bad, the bad uh, spirit of the of the spies. To pray in the merit of the forefathers. Amen. The, the, the place is just absolutely, um, like I say, life changing. And here's the thing: when I have to bring this up now, again, we're not a we're not a, a news show in the classic sense of the word. And I really do try not to talk about the news because it's so it's so. Um, you know, depressing. And because, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is, is absolutely um, fake anyway, in different ways, in many different ways. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I have to, I have to comment in this, in the, of the incredible divine synchronicity of things that we're reading about now and this Torah portion, because now we have this very strong condemnation from the Biden administration of what they call settlements, because, Israel has actually uh, announced its intention to approve, this is the headline, the wording of the headlines are 3,000 housing units in Judea and Samaria, which basically means that they're actually saying maybe we could actually build homes for our children to live in here in the biblical heartland of the land of Israel and pretend that it's actually ours, like the previous administration had recognized. But now the U.S. State Department has basically, and I quote, this is what they've said. When it comes to what we've heard recently, this is the the spokesman, Ned Price, saying, we are deeply concerned about the Israeli government's plan to advance thousands of settlement units tomorrow, many of them deep in the West Bank. What does that what does that even mean? He goes on to say that that we strongly ex- oppose the expansion of settlements, which is completely inconsistent with efforts to lower tensions and to ensure calm. <laughs> and it damages the prospects for, for, for a two-state solution, end quote, for now. So in other words, by our actually building homes. Again, like a normal people would do in their own lands, building a kindergarten, building a school, building a home for for a family that is increasing tensions and it is endangering calm, even though, of course, the calm is endangered by the fact that we exist and everybody knows that already. And it Mm -hmm. damages the prospects for a two state solution. Well, first of all. I would be all in favor of damaging completely, burying, killing any prospect for a two-state solution, since the two-state solution is the opposite of Hashem's will. It's the opposite of, of the, the biblical promises that Hashem gave to Avraham in all of these Torah portions. It's the opposite of everything that is good and right in the eyes of God. Two-state solution spells the destruction of the state of Israel. And I'll continue with the State Department quotation. We have been consistent and clear in our statements to this effect. We also view plans for the retro retroactive legalization of illegal outposts as unacceptable, end quote. Jamie's talking about, you know, my home and where my children live, right? That is an illegal outpost. So that's unacceptable. Oh my goodness. So the point being, all of this is so 
incredible, first of all, because we're learning about the 400 parasangs, but 400 parasangs, and Hashem speaking through Ephron, and the whole concept of what Hebron represents, our connection, and the whole idea, you know, people, people go to Hebron for Shabbat, and it's not considered to be the safest place in the world. It's a hostile Arab uh, um, population uh, there. You know, they, it was a terrible, terrible massacre of Jews under mm-hmm. the watchful and approving eyes of the British mandate in 1929. Um, so it's not the safest place in, in the world uh, to go to. And people uh, live there. Jews live there at great personal sacrifice all year round. Um, and they have a, a community and they enjoy family life. And people say to these Jews, why in the world do you want to live there? Are you out of your mind? And so the classic answer that I've always loved is, well, I, I want to be close to, to my parents. Yeah. You know, I want, I want to be close to my parents. But besides that, I'm doing it for you. We're doing it for every Jew in the world. And in fact, doing it for every person in the world who loves the God of Israel. But in any event, it's it just seems so amazing to me that, that um, of all the people in the world and of all the countries in the world, some of which, uh, from a point of view of of um, just the, uh, the the map the maps of the world and 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 other countries that were that came into being around the same time as the state of Israel, right? There is no other country in the world, and there is no other people in the world whose legitimacy is constantly under attack from every quarter like the Jewish people in the land of Israel. It is, it is absolutely ludicrous. And, and, uh, and how do you explain it other than the fact that people don't like the Jewish people living in the land of Israel? They don't like them anywhere. But the reason for that, ask Ben and Jerry's is because it, 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 it goes, uh, it countermands their, their sense of propriety of what we owe the world and what a Jew is supposed to be in this world. And it countermands their, their, their sense of, um, of, of their, all of, all of their values. And it is not woke. It is, it is definitely not woke for a Jew to stand up and say that Jewish presence in the biblical land of Israel brings blessing and redemption to the world. It's not woke. The problem yeah. is that that is exactly what God declares yeah. and in Genesis even, 12. In last week's Torah portion, Genesis yeah. 12, through you will be blessed all the families of the earth. So either, either give me a break or continue to wage war against the God of Israel. That's what that's what it's all about. And the problem with our news media today is they have no sense. They have no love of history. They have no. Uh, they they don't want to talk about history because history to them is is not relevant for some reason. And if they would study history, they wouldn't even have to look to the Torah to show that Israel has a legitimacy that was granted to them and other nations like Australia and Canada and other nations right at, at the end of World War I, they had the, the peace treaty at Versailles. And when they met there, they came up with the idea of national autonomy for countries who had, 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 uh, had not been recognized by the nations in modern, what we, we could call modern times back then in 1919. And they listed all these nations that should be recognized as true legitimate nations. And Israel was one of them. So there's even a legal precedent for recognizing Israel and the right of the people to return to their to the land that was promised to them going all the way back to the patriarch Avraham. And it represents that ownership forever. 
forever. That's, that's the unbelievable thing about this achuza, as I mentioned, about this estate, about this ancestral heritage. It's not about a burial place. It's not about death. It's about it's about life. And so again, the theme of the parsha is life after death. Life after death, because or life after life, if you'd like, mm-hmm. because it's about eternal life, and it's and and that, you know, the, the purchase of the of the tomb of the patriarchs is just one level of of meaning of acquisition of 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 the our connection to the land forever, that Hashem bequeathed to to Abraham, and and so that's the thing about the everything that we're reading here and the and the incredibly contemporary significance that it has here and the rest of the portion the entire rest of the portion continues the theme of life after death because because Isaac was inconsolable Isaac was inconsolable over the loss of his mother and the time had come now for a wife to be found for Isaac and and there's only one criteria that Eliezer has, that Eliezer is given this mission by, by Avraham. And there's only one criteria, and that is a kind person. Yes. That's the only thing that counts in, in Avraham's household. And so and so now the rest of the parts are being taken up with, with, with finding Rivka and all the back and forth again. And we could spend 2,000 years on every verse. There's so much going on here, the verses that are repeated and, and why Eliezer felt that he had to retell the whole story and everything. And his prayer, which I which I actually made a beautiful video lesson about last year here on Jerusalem Lights about the prayer that, that Eliezer uttered that was answered before he even finished speaking and and that whole concept of 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 what that means so so you can look there in, in last year's video but the thing is i want to say one more thing before we go on jim about this whole idea of what it means to believe in life after death and what it means to see the continuation and the legacy and to understand that we're only here now for the sake of the future we are part of a progression we are part of a process and that's what's going on now in, in through Eliezer, uh, Abraham's faithful servant, fi- finding a, a, the wife, the proper wife, the, the, the soulmate for, for Yitzchak. We're all part of a progression. And we are sandwiched in here between our parents and our children. And we are passing something that we have received. So I want to tell you something so beautiful. I think one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. I know people are not aware of it. You know that when we go to, vis- to visit a, a grave, and we have special prayers for the elevation of the soul of the of the person, and we go there. And of course, we never pray to the person. God forbid, <laughs> we're Jews. We pray to Hashem only at all times, but in the merit of the person and inspired by the person, and expressing our our love for that person. Um, we go to the the grave of a person, and there's a custom that when we go to visit a, a grave, we place stones on the grave. Right, exactly. It's a dis- it's a distinctly Jewish custom, although I must say that in a couple of years ago I ha- I had the amazing experience of going to visit the grave of Billy the Kid in New Mexico uh, with a dear friend of mine. I get there to the tomb of I think it's called For- uh, Fort Sumner yeah. in um, in New Mexico. It's off the beaten path. Go there with my dear friend Yedidia. We drive up there to the, I always wanted to visit the grave of Billy the Kid. I identify with him so much. Always on the outside, you know, always misunderstood. <laughs> always just, just a little bit outside the law. Anyway, and you, we and you were always a straight shooter. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I wouldn't have said that. Okay. And we get there and there are stones on top of the grave. Wow. I said, wow. 
I said, wow. And there were also casings, all different sizes of bullet casings, also put there as a, as a tribute. But there were stones on top of it. Anyway, I digress. So we go to a, a, a grave and we have a custom of placing stones there. There's a, n- a number of reasons for that. It's kind of like uh, to show that you were there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, to show that you were there um, as a sign of respect. And also it is kind of like, because there is, it's a positive commandment to erect a monument because it is a, it is a, um, a symbol of our belief in the, in the in life after death. So it's kind of like that when you add a stone, you're kind of like building it up. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're, you're adding to it. But I want to tell you something beautiful now that, that many people are not aware of, which is I think it's just leaves me speechless, breathless too. Evan. The word Evan in Hebrew is a stone. It's Aleph Bet Nun. And it stands for Abba Ben Nechad. Father, son, grandson. grandson. Or, or in the feminine, it stands for Ima, Bat, Nechada, mother, daughter, granddaughter. And the idea being, again, that, that we, we are part of a chain. So that, so that when I go to visit my father's grave, when, when my child will come to mine, a grandchild will come, the idea is we, we, the stone shows us, it reminds us, this is, we have our time now, there's a time for everyone, and we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. It's a continuation. It's life after death. We mm. are life after death. Our children are life after death. Yeah. It's the Evan. You've given me a completely new slant on the the uh, the verse in the Tanakh. The people of Israel will cherish her stones. I never thought about that. It's so beautiful. And it cherish the stones in the dust. And you know the, the the biggest thing that one of the biggest things that I learned a long time ago when I began to study this parsha that it also teaches us is the um, how we should show kindness to the dead. And there's the old saying um, that I, I, I once heard at a, at a funeral uh, where a rabbi presided over a Noahide burial, by the way. And he asked everyone there, he said, if you have to choose to go to a wedding or to a funeral on the same day, which one should you go to? He said the correct answer was to go to a funeral, to, to first of all, be, to show kindness to the dead. Because it does, there is merit in doing that. Uh, And the other thing is, is because it causes us to pause and to reflect. That's that's the wording of the Midrash, is that the the living will take to heart mm -hmm. when they go to the funeral, because they will be reminded of the preciousness of, of, of our life now. Right. But I want to, I want to go further. And I want to say that the two subjects in our Parsha, the death of Sarah and the union of Yitzchak and Rivka are really one thing because they're both about continuation of the legacies. So here's the thing, if you open up your heart in the deepest way, is that Sarah's tent was a very special concept. We, we already understand that, that Abraham and Sarah's tent, it was, it was open from all four sides, right? Because they were, they were so completely committed and obsessed, really, with acts of kindness. They didn't want to miss anybody that might be coming from any direction. But there's something about Sarah's own tent, Sarah's, Sarah's modest, separate tent, right? That, that after she passed away, it wasn't in use. And Yitzchak had this tremendous um, awe and honor for his mother because of her tremendous unparalleled righteousness. And so he didn't want anybody to be in her tent. 
right? But yet, when when uh, he meets Rivka, when Rivka is is brought through all the signs that Hashem gave to Eliezer, and then we read in verse twenty four sixty seven, and Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah his mother, and he took Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted for the loss of his mother. And, and, and there is this idea that uh, Yitzchak had been in this tremendously inconsolable mourning for his mother. But when Rivka was, arrived in his life, he was consoled. And um, the, the interesting thing is that there's, there is an idea here specifically about the qualities uh, that were manifest in, 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 the, in the tent that came back to life, as it were, because of Rivka's special qualities. And so, so it's, it's, it's an amazing idea that our sages teach that. And it's the following statements, right? Following statement. This is what the sages say, that all the days that Sarah was alive, there were four unique things about her tent. And they're enumerated. The candle burned from Erev Shabbat to Erev Shabbat, and it was all week long of its own power, a candle burned from Sabbath to Sabbath, that the, that the doors were wide open, to offer hospitality all the time, that a cloud was literally fixed, attached to the to the over the tent, and that blessing was abundantly found in the dough. Whatever that means, okay, hold mm-hmm. on. And that when she passed away, these manifestations ceased. Right. So, what do these four things represent? Oh, they sound so the like ca- the Mishkan. Very, very right. Very close. Right. The candle represents the spiritual presence in the house, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the open doors represent the fact that the house is, is based on the attribute of chesed, of hospitality. The cloud is the shekhinah, like you yeah. say, the divine presence, just as it was in, in the tent of meeting. And the, and the dough, the idea of the blessing found in the dough is an idea that, again, as opposed to what many people believe, Torah teaches that God's blessings can be manifest in our physical life. In other words, dough is as physical as you can as you can get because it comes from grain. But the dough made from the grain of, of Eretz Israel has a special uh, requirement in halacha, right? Dough, which is used to bake bread, that comes from the grain of the land of Israel, requires a separation to be taken. It's called challah, and it's very similar to the priestly tithes that are taken from the fruit of the land of Israel, because when we take a small amount from that dough and we raise it up for Hashem, then the entire dough becomes like a, like a, um, a conduit for blessing. Right. And all of that, and all of that. And that, by the way, um, Proverbs 31 of a woman of valor is right. actually said, said to be about Sarah. So all of that is in her, is in her merit. So what happens here? What happens here is that, is that Yitzchak is in, is in mourning for his mother for three years. Right. And uh, Eliezer is sent by Abraham to go and find uh, a wife. Right. And again, skipping all of the important verses about the drinking and the camels, which we'll get to in a minute, but Eliezer is is off on his mission and Yitzchak in the meantime is praying for the right woman and he's praying at the site of the place that will become the holy temple right he's mm-hmm. awaiting he's awaiting for her arrival in ch- chapter 24 and verse 63 and Isaac went forth to pray in the field towards evening and he lifted his eyes and saw and behold camels were approaching right which is the caravan conveying Rivka right and and uh, and again Eliezer 
who was Avraham's servant, basically grew up, uh, as it were, in Avraham's household. He knew full well what kind of household it was that Avraham had and, and how Yitzchak was raised and what would be important in that household. And Eliezer knew about that tent and, and those unique manifestations. But the thing is, I, right, this is amazing because when Eliezer is on his mission, and we read in all of these verses, he doesn't check all sorts of uh, criteria in Rivka to see if she is a spiritual powerhouse, if there's going to be a cloud over her, if there's spiritual abundance in the blessing in the dough. He doesn't, he, there's no hint that he looked for any of these things. He just looked for one thing, kindness, right? How, uh, how he asked for some water. Let me sip, if you please, a little water from your jug. And she said, drink master. And quickly she lowered her jug and gave him to drink. And then when she finished, she said, I will even draw for your camels, right? So, so that's why he was so astonished. And of course, of course, you know, there was another reason why he was astonished as well, which is that, and this is a, another deeper lesson, which is that he, there was some uh, existential angst here also, because he, he actually thought that, that his daughter would be uh, suitable for, um, for Yitzchak. That's, a, that's another story altogether. But the, the bottom line is, because again, there's no end to the depth of these verses in Torah, but the, the bottom line that I, for our purpose now is that when Rivka arrived into Yitzchak's life, our sages teach us, Sarah's tent came back to life. And these four things, these four phenomena returned to the tent. And that's why Yitzchak was consoled, because he saw that she was going to continue the legacy of his mother. And again, Evan, Abba, Ben, Nechad, Ima, Bat, Nechada, it's a continuation. It's all about a process. And that's why I say that, that, that it's all about this legacy. And, and, um, that's the true meaning of, of verse 67. Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah's mother and he took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her. And he, he was comforted for his mother because he saw that these manifestations returned, meaning that he knew that she would be the same type of presence in the world for Hashem's, for Hashem's presence to be held in, in this world. And that, cause that's what the people of Israel are supposed to be. And that was the, that was a match made in heaven, and so and so it's it's interesting how even though again ostensibly when we begin the parsha, we think that this is a Torah portion about death, and we're like, oh, that's depressing. So, no, actually, it's not depressing in the least bit. It's because life, the life force is eternal because our souls are all eternal. Proper respect and honor and understanding has to be accorded to what we refer to as death, but it's all part of this incredible prog process that we are going through in this world and afterwards in order to, to connect with Hashem eternally. And that's, that's what this unbelievable lesson is. And it was a tremendous lesson that Avraham was teaching the B'nai Chet because again, and there's plenty of people today in the world also that are so fatalistic and they're so, and they, and they have no, Unfortunately, you know, their time comes and they were so busy on their hamster wheel chasing their career or whatever it is that they were doing or chasing their own inadequacies and that they never mastered, that they never built up their own belief system, their own, if I, would, if I may say, their own spiritual uh, um, um, immunity system. And so they, 
come to the they come to the end of life and they're completely unprepared because they they they've treated God like a stranger. That's why it's called a vodazara. Idolatry is called a vodazara, which basically means a strange service. Because when you treat God like a stranger your whole life and you don't let him in until you're you're about to die and you think, well, I better I better talk to him now. Like what kind of a that's that's awkward. <laughs> it's a little bit awkward, right? Like I this well, I know it's late to start now, but if you spend your life understanding what this world is all about and that it's all about preparing for Hashem's presence in, in our life, in our soul all the time, then there's no difference. That's why the, the, the sages teach this, for, for a righteous person, there's no difference between this world and the next world. It's all the same. Wherever you want me, you want me here, you want me there. Because again, we said that in, in another podcast, bend me, shape me. Remember, like however you want me is how I'll be your, I'll be your Gumby. You want yeah. me like this, I'll be like this. You want me like that, I'll be like that. Because all that matters is that we are attached to Hashem all the time. And the other important concept, Rabbi, that comes out of this entire Parsha is the value that Hashem and the Torah put on uh, womanhood and motherhood. And and the, the it shows you how the, the patriarchs could have not, they were nothing without their wives. I mean, Sarah was even likened to a prophet. Her yeah. prophecy was greater than Avraham's. That's, That's right. why Hashem said to her, said to him, do whatever she says, whatever yeah. she says you should do, because she was a greater prophet than Avraham. And women altogether are exactly. more spiritually attuned to men. And that's the whole idea about the woman being taken from the rib is that there is an intuitive wisdom uh, that our sages referred to as Bina an extra level of understanding that women have. And this, the whole Parsha is dedicated. This is the Torah portion of the celebration of womanhood and motherhood, motherhood. And there's no greater hero in the world than a mother. Yes. And I mean, we men have no idea how it's done. It's just, it's all like a total mystery to, to us that, that, that they can do that. They're so high. It's, it's absolutely just, incredible. It's like the, uh, the old song, uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Let me ask you something before we run out of time. Are you going to explore any other aspects of this in your upcoming Zoom classes? And and while I'm on the subject, tell people, tell our listeners about the Zoom classes and and how they can sign up. Right now, the main um, the main Zoom classes that we have because I have some separate classes for certain parts of the world, like India. But the main Zoom classes that are accessible to everyone right now are every Sunday, unless there is an exception because of the holiday schedule or something or some emergency. Every Sunday we have a class. And um, they've been going on, I think, for about two years. And we've had many, many subjects. We had quite a few classes about the patriarchs and matriarchs and about the Garden of Eden and about all sorts of subjects like the, like the cycle of the year and the Holy Temple and many, many subjects. Right now, we are in an amazing study of the book of First Samuel. And the goal of our study is to really understand the... Um, the whole concept of the soul of King David. And so we've began from the beginning of Samuel, we were talking about the prophet Samuel and about King Saul and the differences between King Saul and King David. And this Sunday, um, we are actually up to the chapter, I believe it's chapter 17 um, in um, 1 Samuel, where we're going to be learning about David and Goliath and the whole rise of, of King David um, in the whole hierarchy of, of King Saul's world right now. 
that's every Sunday. So we're, so we're learning right now about first um, Samuel on every other Tuesday, we are uh, studying a classic work called Misilat Yesharim, The Path of the Just by the Holy Rabbi Moshe Chaim Litzato, which is all about, um, I would say it's, it's called um, self-improvement. It's about ethical development. It's about how a person can master um, themselves. There's a certain degree of um, self-knowledge involved in psychology and a deeper understanding of motivation. And it's all about basically trying to become as close as we can to Hashem in this world, trying to curb our, our faults, trying to overcome our failings and trying to um, work on ourselves to become proper vessels to be on the path of the just. Anybody can attend these classes. Um, every All are welcome, but you do have to uh, write to me um, at rabbi at rabbirichman.com. The login information for the Zoom classes changes every week um, at the suggestion of Zoom security protocol. So we we actually welcome everyone um, on a personal basis, one by one, to to um, to write, and then everybody receives the Zoom login information every week prior to the class. And not only that, but anyone who would like to catch up and view uh, or listen to um, previous classes uh, can receive them. Um, just for the asking to view them at their convenience or to download them. All of this, of course, is a project of Jerusalem Lights. You can learn more about it at www.rabbirichmond.com. And it's all, of course, free of charge. And uh, we welcome everybody's participation. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to share a, a little bit of information that I found very fascinating. One of the verses that has always intrigued me at the end of this Parsha of, of Chaya Sarah is the reference to the end of the life of Avraham when he marries Keturah. What I've always found interesting is that it's it speaks of the sons that he has with Keturah. And he says that he sent many of them away with gifts to the east. To the land of the east. To the land of the east. And I've always been intrigued by that. So I, I was doing some research and I found in Isaiah 49, there is a prophecy about people returning to Eretz Israel. And then they shall come from from far away from the north and from the west and these will come also from the land of the sinim sinim is the hebrew word for the chinese there is a group of people that were discovered by a scottish missionary back in the 1900s and they're called the chian sing and they live near the tibetan border they live in in high mountaintops in in fortress-like villages and i don't know their status today but back when this missionary had discovered them and studied them for a while, he found out that they claimed to have come from Israel centuries before. And he said at that time, some of them even looked Semitic, those who had not, who had not intermarried. And they traced their lineage back to Avraham and the 12 tribes. And they said they had come, uh, come to China. They, they had, it had taken them three years to arrive there. And they came during the Han Dynasty, which would put them around the time of the Assyrian dispersion, when the ten tribes were taken away. They would conduct offerings with priests wearing dressed in white, and they would slaughter the animal. They would they would uh, burn up part of the animal's body parts, and they would give the edible parts to themselves and to the rest of the tribe. 
They built altars of stone and earth. They considered the Chinese to be idol worshipers. And because the Jian Sin only worshipped one god, the Chinese considered them barbarians. The surprise ending to this program today, and, and our listeners have no idea that you and I did not discuss this beforehand. You're catching me completely off guard. We did not plan this. I did not know you were going to be discussing this. And I never told you this, Jim. Yeah. But about four or five years ago, a couple from that community, a very young couple with young children from that community that was here in Israel studying in a university came to visit me in my office and they brought me photographs of their of life in their community. They are very into animal offerings, a Passover offering. They have altars with corners. They uh, the community is exactly as you describe it. And they left me with um, a um, CD full of photographs, the most unbelievable photographs of this community. I'll send them to you. Oh, I I would love to see them. Uh, I'll send you some and. Um, and I'll share that with you. So yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing that because I actually know exactly what you're talking about. I had this very moving meeting with this couple who came to express their devotion to the God of Israel. That is so amazing because I was this, Tibet, I was this Tibetan couple. I was wondering as I read this, I thought, I wonder how much has changed since this missionary had visited no, these I, people. I know exactly what you're talking about. They're, they're really oh. kind of cut, cut off from much of the world. Yeah, yeah. So I wish all of our listeners, Jim, and you as well, of course, a wonderful, blessed week. And may it be for good health and success and peace, wisdom, joy, and every heavenly blessing. Mm -hmm.